0: Today's passage is from Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for twelve years, who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. only believe, and he allowed no one to follow him except peter and james and john the brother of james they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue and jesus saw a commotion people weeping and wailing loudly and when he had entered he said to them why are you making a commotion and weeping the child is not dead but sleeping and they laughed at him but he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they they were immediately overcome with amazement, and he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and told them to give her something to eat. This has been the word of the Lord.
1: So Mark chapter five. We've been going through the Gospel of Mark about the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, now for I think around 15 sermons and we're, reached, we're at the end of chapter five. During those sermons and during the, the time that we've been talking about it, we've come across nine stories or mentions of Jesus healing somebody or casting out demons. As I came to prepare a message from Mark chapter 5 and the end of the chapter, the thought to me immediately was, why another story about another healing? Why more stories? Isn't it sufficient, the stories he's already told us? Um, I think we can come to a deeper understanding of the specific, unique reasons that Mark is telling this story by asking a few what appear to be kind of obvious questions of what don't make sense here. And through it, through understanding, we can understand what is unique about these stories because there were many that were healed whose stories did not get in here, that we don't know about. Mostly I would say what these stories of healing and this particular story of raising a young girl from the dead is showing us is that Jesus doesn't fit into the mold of the religious leader who comes to give um, a more organized society with better morals? He has come to completely turn upside down the power structure of evil and good. And if you're going to follow him, you can't hold on to him as some sort of religious leader that is going to teach some good stuff. He is ultimate power that came to earth for our good. And so, in particular, I want to ask three questions of this text today the first question is going to be why the question why did jesus ask this lady ask who touched me that's the first i think obvious question of this text jesus who knows all things asked who touched me the second question is why did he delay to the point that this young girl died um and we'll we'll get into that more and then third toward the end of the passage um, he keeps putting the crowds away and telling them to stop following him And I want to ask, why is he doing that? So those three questions, we're going to have three conclusions of what is very unique about these stories and what God wants to teach us. For our kids today, this story is a specific story for you. How many of you are 12 years old or younger who are staying with us today? Luke here, definitely, tallest 12-year-old in the building. All right, we have a few kids. So this story is about a girl that is 12 years old who had died. And Jesus brought her back to life. So as you listen to the story, it's not just about adults somewhere in some other country. It's about kids your age. So the first question that I ask when I come to this story comes around verse 30. And Alex read the whole passage for us. But then in verse 30, so Jesus was on his way to Jairus' house. Now, a little context. They've come back across the Sea of Galilee and they had left a very um, cold reception by the people on the other side. He threw out the demons that were legion or were hundreds of demons in this man. Um, the townspeople saw that it hurt their business and he asked. they asked him to leave. So he leaves the side of the northern, northeastern side of Galilee, comes to the western side of Galilee where he had been ministering before. And we don't know how soon, but... Pretty soon, as he got to the other side, a great crowd gathered around him. And they wanted healing, and they wanted to hear him, and they wanted to touch him. And a man named Jairus, who was a leader of the synagogue. Now, a leader of the synagogue, he's gonna be a very religious man, but not only very religious, he's also going to be wealthy and respected in the community, but he's at his wit's end. His daughter is dying. Now, nothing is sweeter to a man than his daughter and if anything softens the crusty ragged edges of men it's their little daughters who come into this world and totally turn them soft so you can imagine this man's 12 year old daughter is dying and he is frantic that Jesus come and heal her so Jesus says he'll go with him, and he was very reasonably probably only a few houses or blocks away from Jairus' Jairus's house. It's not a big town, and um, the amount that he had, the, the distance he had to go wasn't great. On the way, the crowd is gathering around him, and he stops in the middle of the crowd, and he asks this question in verse 30, who touched my garments? Now, in verse 32, Now the disciples in verse 31 were also confused about why he would ask this because evidently many people were touching him. But you'll see in verse 28, the or 29, or 28, the reason, um, where where, where am I going to find that? All right, Uh, verse 30, it says Jesus perceived in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about the crowd and said, who touched me? So Jesus feeling power go out of him. We're going to talk about that in a second, what that means. Um, But he asked who touched me. Now, he knew who this woman was. Jesus knows all things. He knows what's in the heart of people. He knew who she was. He knew she was a poor woman who was alone in the world. In that culture, she should have had a father or a husband or a son that would accompany her in a crowd like that, who would speak for her and advocate for her. That's the way it worked back in those days. So evidently she was alone in the world. She had also had no provider for her because the money she had spent on trying to get well had been totally wasted on um, ancient doctors and she was now poor and alone. And not only that, but she was also a woman in that society. And if you remember, Jairus was a rich, respected, religious leader and he was going with him, and all of a sudden he stops for a poor woman who was completely alone in the world. Um, It's possible her father had died, it's possible the 12 years of her sickness made her unmarriable by any man, and so she was not having children and was considered of the most helpless and lonely of society. Not only that, but he knew how she was suffering She was suffering from what the Bible says was an issue or a flow of blood. Maybe she was hemorrhaging from the womb continually. And now bleeding is an emergency in any situation. I was playing cornhole with Caleb. Has anybody ever seen a blood uh, injury playing cornhole? It happened to Caleb on Friday. I brought a cornhole as a welcoming gift to them. We're playing cornhole. He cuts his foot on the cornhole and starts to bleed. You remember that, don't you? Of course you do. So the moment that happens, Caleb, the moment that happens, what do you do? you just keep playing cornhole? No, he's like, well, my goodness, I have blood coming out of my foot. And immediately, if you're bleeding, everything stops, right? And you have to stop the bleeding. So he goes inside, tries to stop the bleeding. The first effort, did it work? First effort didn't work. So we go back in, make a second effort at it. This time we find mom and dad, and we find... What? Band-Aids, right? So little Band-Aids took care of this bleeding, and then we could go back to our cornhole. Well, imagine that 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 issue took, what, like five minutes? We had to clean the toes. He cut two toes playing cornhole. It's a very dangerous sport if you guys ever get into it, if you play it like Caleb. And um, so, or at least the one I bought for you maybe has sharp edges. I don't know. But that took about five minutes. Imagine that taking 12 years to get that bleeding to stop. And now imagine that that stop was not just a, or that blood was not just a little bit, but it was flowing constantly, causing you to be weak, causing you to be tired, causing you to constantly be changing the rags that were on your wound and not being able to heal it. This woman was going through 12 years of emergency. And if you've gone through medical emergencies before, you know the frustration that could possibly come when you're doing that for 12 years. So he knew the kind of suffering she was going through. Not only was uh, this a bleeding problem, but it was also a social problem. In the Hebrew world, because of Old Testament laws, she was supposed to be, um, as long as she was bleeding, she was not supposed to be around people. So she was a sort of an outcast. So she was also suffering financially. She had spent all of her money on these quack doctors who were trying to help her. And here are some of the ways they might have tried to help her. In those days, they would make concoctions of different types of herbs, mix it in wine, and recommend that for drinking. Um, Sudden shock therapy was a way they would try to get these sorts of um, problems to stop. I don't know what sudden shock therapy might have looked like in those days. Jumping out from around a corner, I don't know if that works on bleeding problems, but that was what I read in those days. They would try to uh, get to stop that. Um, They would break ostrich eggs, grind them into ashes and carry them around in a piece of cloth. And uh, hopefully that would work. I'm not sure if that is still something we use today. Not recommended. So no ostrich egg shells. Um, They would burn her with hot irons on her place of wound to try to get the skin to come together and to stop the bleeding. They would put her in rooms of smoke with different incantations where they would say things like, Arise out of your flow of blood. And you kids have probably heard abracadabra, right? That's something you say if you want something magical to help. Well, they said all sorts of phrases and incantations like that to try to help this bleeding to stop. And every time she had to do that, she was paying somebody to give her these sort of solutions. So she was, in all respects, a woman who was suffering in this world. Another thing, though, that he knew about her was her faith. Look at what she says in verse 28. She said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Now if you notice what she believed, this is what her faith was very similar to Jairus. Look back in verse 22. Jairus came to Jesus, fell at his feet, and in verse 23 he implored him and said, my little daughter's at the point of death. What does he want Jesus to do? Look with me in verse 23 if you would. Somebody answer. What does he think Jesus needs to do in order for his daughter to not die? Help me out. Somebody give me some feedback. Come quickly. Touch her. Lay your hand on her. This is similar to what the, this woman thought. She thought, if I touch him. So they believe that there is some touch. This is a bit of superstition in those days that And of course the stories had been going around that Jesus was healing people and often he would heal them by touching them. But this is why I think Jesus stopped and spoke specifically to this woman who touched him. And I'll give you the reason and then I'll give you some reasons I think that. Jesus would not allow this woman to remain anonymous and superstitious. He was pulling her into a relationship with him so that she would know one thing, transformational power is available by faith alone and jesus alone the word of god now she could have easily touched him been healed from that problem and left and never known jesus never had a con- connection with him and never a relationship with him now they had other superstitions you'll remember during that day if you touched this certain pool of Siloam during a certain moment when an angel would come down and touch it, you could be healed. You don't need a relationship with that water to be healed. You just need to touch it. So that's what she was. She wasn't looking for a relationship with Jesus. She was looking desperately to be touched and to be healed. But Jesus, knowing her real need, knew she needed to understand that the power was in the person of Jesus who is the very word of God. I'll give you a few verses um, that that go along with this, um, I will wait for the Lord, my soul waits, says Psalm 130. In his word, I have hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. To contrast this to a Roman centurion, Matthew chapter five, or Matthew eight, a Roman centurion who was not a Jew, who had not read that Psalm that I just read to you, came to Jesus and wanted his servant to be healed. And do you remember what Jesus said? He said, I will go with you. And what did did the Roman centurion say? Does anybody remember? Cindy? Just say the word. He said, you're busy. All you have to do is say the word and my servant will be healed. And Jesus' response from that was that I have never seen such faith even in Israel. And he spoke the word without touching the servant and that servant was healed. So the reason that I believe Jesus particularly stopped and spoke to that woman and asked who touched him and had that conversation with him is so he could get to verse 34 where he says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Not a superstitious touch, um, not an inanimate energy that came from me into you, but your faith And the object of your faith, the person of Jesus, has made you well. Be healed of your disease. So he speaks. You, You see what he does here? Even though he had already touched her and let her be healed, even when we come to Jesus with our misunderstandings, he will still heal, but he corrects it. And through his word says, be healed with his word. So some application for that. I don't know what you're suffering today. Maybe you're generally tired of something you're dealing with. Maybe you're lonely um, like this woman was. Maybe you're having financial struggles um, the way that this woman was, and you've spent all of your earnings on something. Um, Maybe it's a health problem that you're going through, a relationship problem, a marriage problem, a soul problem, depression and discouragement. So where do we find help? In our generation, we often go to spirituality and meditation. We look for answers in psychology. And generally, as Protestant Christians, if that fits you today, we try harder, we push harder, and we fight more. And we think, if I'll just do this, then I'll find healing. I want, to, I want you to consider what help is in faith, surrendering to God's word. In our church we have two emphasis emphases this year emphases this year discipleship so going deeper the word the gospel going deeper into our lives and outreach the gospel going extending and going further out here's what i want to here's where i think one application is in our discipleship i just i think that this passage the story can encourage us that in our relationships in our marriages as we talk with one another and in our Um, it's the word of God that is going to bring healing and bring help to our lives that will deepen the gospel's impact and we should keep doing that. Um, Maybe we should do it more, but we should for sure keep among each other letting the word of God heal us and looking for his word. Secondly, in our outreach, um, I want to pray by the end of this year that we, as a church, start seeing unbelievers doing regular Bible studies in God's word with those of us in a a church, in our church. Um, That may be happening here and there as we open God's word and speak it to people we work with, and that's very important, or people we go to school with. Um, I do that every week. Jerry and I were sharing, if you want to share the gospel and open the Bible with somebody, go to the university within... 10, 20 minutes, you're going to be sharing the gospel with somebody, but this extended getting in the word of God with people who don't know it and who don't yet believe it is what will be the power of God to make transformational change in people around us. So as a church, I think that one way we could apply this is say there are people who have superstitious ideas about the Bible, superstitious ideas about Jesus, the prophet, or Jesus the healer, or Jesus even the Son of God, but they don't know him. And if we can get them in his word this year, his word has the power to transform. So as a, as a body, let's begin to pray that this year, before the end of the year, this will be happening in multiple relationships and groups that we'll be studying and reading God's word with unbelievers, and we cannot think that it's not possible that nobody who's not already a believer would want to read God's word. It's um, interesting that sometimes God causes us to be surprised by who's interested in knowing more about God's word. I've been praying for a neighbor of mine, and I've been burdened with my unbelief about what God could do in this neighbor's life. It, their Home is a visible uh, problem, I would say. Their marriage is a visible problem to the whole neighborhood. And I began to pray, Lord, I have to admit, I have a lack of belief that you can really work a work of grace in these people's lives. Maybe you have neighbors or friends like this. We could begin to pray like that together. He came up to me just this week and said, Hey, you're a minister, right? And I was like, Yeah, I was like, I'd like to come to your church. I didn't expect him to say that. He's not here today. Hopefully he'll come soon and you all can love him and bring him in. But what's going to make the difference in his life? If we can get him and anyone else to really know Christ through his word, it'll change their lives. So that's, that's the, I think, the answer. Jesus wanted to pull her away from her superstition into a relationship with him, the word of God. Second question that comes to my mind If you keep reading verse 35, while he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? You can imagine the emotion that this man felt at this moment. He's probably wringing his hands. I don't know what you do when you're stressed. My wife scratches at her thumbs until they're bleeding. Some people wring their hands. Some people destroy their own teeth. Um, I don't know what yours is, but this guy was probably doing all of those and more. He was probably shaking, frustrated at how long this was taking. And maybe the closest illustration I have is when um, we're between, we're on the way to the airport or we're, we're in an airport and I wanna get to check in and my wife wants to stop to get a coffee and I'm just, you guys don't know what I'm talking about unless you're related to me, but that's where I feel that moment of extreme anxiety because I have somewhere I have to be and somebody's delaying me. This guy's daughter is at the point of death. Jesus is delaying to talk to this woman who does not have a chronic, uh, at a, what's the word, urgent situation. She has a chronic situation. David, Michael, what do we call this in the medical world? What do we, well, I'll just give you the answer when I'm looking for. Yeah, acute. You, you would also call what Jesus did possible malpractice? Uh, delay of treatment. Yeah. yeah, which could be malpractice. So my second question of this passage is, why did Jesus delay? We know he's the great physician, and of course we know the rest of the story, that he brought this girl back from dead. But this man had to be asking, why are you delaying? Why are you not urgently doing what I can obviously see needs to be done for this innocent young child? So as he hears this news, I've I've never lost a child, but I could just imagine that he is just broken immediately and thinks all hope is gone. I tried everything I could, and my little girl is gone. So this man in the crowd believed though that Jesus had power to heal her, but they did not believe that he could bring her back from the dead. Because as soon as she died, they said, don't bother the master anymore, she's gone. And once she's gone, no magician can bring her back. So I think the reason that that Jesus delayed here is that God allows situations to move from improbable to the impossible in order to show himself strong on our behalf. So God lets situa- this situation move from improbable, it was very improbable that he could heal her, but we see people healed, right? We see medicines that work, but we also see unexplainable things that doctors can't explain, but we've never observed somebody being brought back from the dead despite certain certain books, but. Uh, we, we know that when somebody is dead, you pronounce them dead, right? They're no longer with us. And so Jesus knew their need for understanding His power was not that he can do the improbable, but that he can do the impossible. So if you ever face a situation where you ask God for something, and you asked, and you asked, and you asked, and he delayed and delayed and delayed. Take heart. Christian, God does not delay. He does all things at the right time. There are no catastrophic situations for a Christian. A Christian never faces a catastrophic situation. He faces only the good will of his father, only opportunities for God to show himself strong on our behalf. It reminds me of the story from Judges 6 where Gideon goes to fight 135,000 Midianites with 32,000 soldiers. Do you guys know this story? Did you kids ever learn this one in Sunday school? 32,000 against 135,000. Now if you're in elementary math, you can probably figure out. It's not great odds. If you're in middle school math, you can figure out. That's somewhere around 1 to 3.4. So What does God tell Gideon to do? Whittle your numbers down. And he gets it down from 32,000 to 10,000. He says, the reason is, I don't want anybody to say that it is our strong hand that won us this battle. They got down to 10,000, verse 135. Now we're down to one to 35. One soldier per 35, soldiers on the other side. God says, still too many. It's still improbable, but possible. Get it down. They got it down to 300. And it was those 300 that God used to give the victory that day. That means that God does wait often until the improbable has become impossible that he might show himself strong. What does Romans chapter eight say? Who can separate us from the love of God? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Those words are catastrophes, right? For those who don't know God, Words like distress, tribulation, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, or sword are catastrophes. But in God, and Christ, as we are in him, all of these things, it says, we are more, through all of these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So what does that mean? Do you feel like your problem has gone from bad to impossible and you are losing hope? Do you feel like you are behind and have lost years and you can't get them back. You're tempted to think that he has not been there because he is delayed to deliver you. His word tells us exactly what he says to Jairus here in verse 36. Overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And that's God's message for us today. If you think God is delaying and answering some what you can see as an urgent and necessary request. God will come through for you, he is not late. He will come on time and do glorious things. You are not separated from his love or out of his plan, you are where he wants you to be. Um, Don told me the other day we were talking and he told me that a particular denominational leader in our denomination told him maybe a year or two ago that without a doubt, this church would cease to exist. Am I, am I right about that? Well, statistically, this man is right. But we serve a God who does the impossible. And he gets us and puts us in impossible places just for this purpose, so he can show himself strong. So why has he put this church on the east side of this city, where it is not only improbable, but impossible for you to build a church and a congregation and make disciples among a people so hard and difficult, it is possible that God has placed us in this impossible place that he might show himself strong. And that is what our prayer should be. Lord, you have put us here for this purpose, to show yourself strong. Now we're ready when you're ready. And we're gonna keep witnessing. We're gonna keep lifting up your word. And we're gonna wait as you, in your timing, will do glorious things for your name's sake. Last question that I have of this passage, as we keep going in the passage, it says in verse 37, he allowed no one to follow him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. So that means his nine other disciples. That means the whole crowd that was with them. In verse 38, they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue. Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, why are you making commotion and weeping? The child is not dead but sleeping. They laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those that were with him and went in where the child was. So why, if Jesus was the healer, wouldn't he instead bring this girl out from the room and let people watch him? I mean, have you, have you ever guys seen magicians? Ryan, you like magicians, don't you? You like magic? Not so much. Anybody any of you kids like magic? Yeah, you like magic? Uh-huh. Yeah, and every, and and what they do? They brought it in front of everybody, right? In front of the whole school or in front of the whole class, and they do their tricks in front of everybody. So why didn't Jesus bring this girl out and let everybody see him raise her from the dead? Why does he keep pushing the crowd away? He takes Peter, James, and John, and mom and dad with him in the room with the young girl. I think that there's some reasons for this. Uh, One reason could be that he was just feeling crowded, and for sure, that was a problem. We've, We've read about that throughout Mark, how he was constantly pushed on. Another reason might be that he wanted a little bit of peace and quiet. They were wailing and laughing at him at the same time. And that was a problem. Jillian and I have been to a few weddings in North Africa, traditional cultures when people die. the fu- I said wedding. I meant funeral. At a few funerals in North Africa, when people die, the family, especially the women in the family, wail quite unnaturally as a way of showing sadness that somehow gets some points in the, in the afterlife for this person. Also, a wealthy person like Jairus had probably been had people on paid staff who would come and wail. So you had wailing and you had laughing. This was, a, this was a circus of people. So for sure, I would say, Jesus wanted a little peace and quiet. But I think there's something deeper going on about why Jesus said for nobody to follow him. And I'll, I'll tell you what I think it is. The answer, I think, is Jesus was, while wildly popular with the crowds, is tender and kind to the individual. Look at the words he says to this young girl, Talitha Kumi. Our translators in the ESV have written, little girl, I say to you, arise. He, Talitha Kumi definitely doesn't have the I say to you part. It just says, little girl, arise. But as he was translating it, as Mark is translating it into Greek from Aramaic, he puts it and says, Talitha, he says, little girl, I say to you, rise. But why would he say it in Aramaic? Why did, he want, why did Mark want us to know the very exact words that Jesus said to this little girl? Um, we were just speaking of Tim Keller. He helped me in this point that this word little girl, Talitha, isn't something you would call just anybody. It's a very sweet name for a small child, almost like you'd call a little girl sweetie. And kumi, if you speak Arabic, it's the same word, kum, or kumi, to a female, it means wake up or get up. So you can imagine Jesus bending down and touching this little girl and saying to her, sweetie, wake up. And she wakes up. Now, he wanted quiet to speak tender words to this little girl. And this is the kind of Jesus that we have. This is the kind of God that we serve. Now, some of us are under the idea that we serve a God who is demanding and who is like a difficult boss who wants you to work harder and do better, produce more, bring better results if he's gonna be happy with you. And I've been in that spot. What we do when we do that is we, we project that onto others. We have no rest on the inside and we're not able to give kindness to others. But our Jesus is tender and he's kind. If you look at what he said in verse 34 to the lady that he healed, he, did, he called her daughter. That's that's also a word of relationship and of kindness. So this is what makes the difference between a religious person from someone with a relationship with Jesus. Every real follower of Jesus has had this experience with our tender Savior. So how do you imagine your relationship with Jesus? Is he tender with you? Does he wake you up in the mornings with a tender word and say, Sweetie, wake up. If you're a guy, I don't think he probably does. But he wants you to hear his tender voice of care for you, much like you experienced as a small child. And he shows that tenderness in these times, and he wanted the mother and father to be in that room, to see his tender care for their daughter, because nobody loves that daughter of Jairus as much as as that little girl's creator. That is to say that not even the mother and father of that little girl were as sweet and tender to her as his creator, as her creator. Now, what does that mean for our parenting? Well, first of all, it means that our parenting should be with a lot of tenderness towards our children. It should be that, that we reflect to them the tenderness of God's feelings towards them. It doesn't mean that they don't need discipline but it means in the manner in which we give it. It should even be with a lot of tenderness. What does it mean about our leadership? It means our leadership in churches and the way that we interact with each other as leaders in the church should be not a power struggle, but a kindness toward one another. What does that mean for our witness in this community? It means that on the university campus we should not carry signs and pig pig heads and all sorts of craziness that let people know they're going to hell, but should it be full of the tenderness of Jesus when we tell them that they have a creator that they don't know who wants to know them. So, Ephesians 4 32 says, Be kind, tenderhearted, affectionate, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. How is it possible that we can learn to be tender with each other? We first must receive the tenderness of Christ for ourselves and be able to turn that horizontally towards others. I think there's another reason as a conclusion to the sermon that Jesus, only one of those five in there, Jesus was deepening the faith of a few, Peter, James, and John, for the benefit of the many. It's not that he didn't care about the crowd, but he was deepening the faith of a few for the benefit of the many. And you know, Peter preached the first sermon of the Christian church, John wrote the last of the letters telling us that Jesus is soon returning. He would use those disciples to lead and he wanted them to see the manner in which Christ deals and how he can raise from the dead. This was his first miracle of raising someone from the dead. He wanted that conviction that resurrection power was in the Son of God to be deep with those three. So here's the question, has God given you a closer experience with his word and with his resurrection power in your life than he's given many in this world? If you're here and if you believed in Jesus, then he has. The reason he's given you a privileged front row seat to his power is because he wants to use you to impact a world who needs the gospel. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a Jesus who is tender and kind, yet full of power, the kind of power that this world has never seen. We pray that as we continue to walk through Mark, that you would help us to know the character of Jesus, help us to hear his tender voice for us, and the power of resurrection that we can know. I pray, Lord, that we would understand the, that his word gives life, and that you would help us as we go forth to open up his word with our friends and neighbors who don't know you. In Jesus' name, amen.